the hard part about conservation is you have to be successful for eternity for it to matter at all. It only really matters if it works forever. Your positive, positive, positive imprint. 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 Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint. Well, hello. Thank you so much for listening to all of these amazing and exceptional positive imprints. Well, I'm Catherine, your host of the podcast, Your Positive Imprint, the variety show featuring people all over the world whose positive actions are inspiring positive achievements. Exceptional people rise to the challenge. Music by the talented Chris Noll. Check out his music and learn so much more about his background. Download his music and also some of his written compositions for piano. For the podcast, Chris composed Elevated Intentions, a perfect title. Chris's music may be found at chrisnoll.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-N-O-L-E. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram, Your Positive Imprint. Connect with me on LinkedIn. My website is yourpositiveimprint.com, where you can sign up for email updates and learn more about the podcast. You can listen to the show from my website, yourpositiveimprint.com, or of course, listen from any podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or simply your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening and supporting the show. And don't forget to share episodes, download, subscribe, or follow this podcast, and leave positive reviews. Enjoy the show and get inspired to activate your own positive imprint. Your Positive Imprint. What's your P.I.? Mike Silvestrini's life changed. He joined up with the Peace Corps and spent time in Africa as a small enterprise development officer. During his time in Africa, he observed the extreme need to protect precious ecosystems and wildlife. He calls himself an enviro-capitalist because he sees a need for big business, small business, you and me, to invest in renewable energy around the world. Mike Silvestrini, welcome to the show. Hey, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Mike looks back and associates his many traveling experiences that laid the foundation for his own positive imprints. But many people travel. Well, Mike explains how his travels inspired him on his environmental path. You know, I think it started off, Catherine, as um, just a love affair with traveling and experiencing different cultures and hanging out with other travelers and seeing different places. At a young age, basically my teenage years, I started to travel with my friends, going on road trips, just domestically. And then those road trips became uh, multi-month adventures. And then I moved to Colorado to do a snowboard season uh, when I was <laughs> 19 and then met an Australian girl there. And then we wound up traveling around the world for some time, a couple of years landed in Australia and just sort of the, the, the sort of chain reaction of life events that occurred during your youth during those, those twenties was so impactful to me. And I just wanted to keep it going and keep on exploring and keep seeing and learning. And I tried to figure out ways that what types of lifestyles would allow me to professionalize my life as I grow and you know, want to eventually have a job and a family, but still be able to maintain 
uh, a love and my passion for travel and understanding the world. And that kind of forced me to think about international diplomacy, which is what I studied in grad school and led to basically starting the solar energy company because it was through my studies in grad school that I realized that, you know, maybe it's not all about traveling right now. Maybe we need to take a step back and look what are the current events in the world saying to us. And we had the Nobel Prize going to the scientific community who proved beyond the shadow of a doubt that climate change was a significant concern for humanity. We had two conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq. And Iraq was certainly uh, to no small uh, degree related to fossil fuels. And it just seemed that uh, something needed to change in the way that we energize ourselves. So I started off with this idea of traveling forever and somewhere along the way discovered renewable energy as, as my life path. And only now have I been able to circle back and connect the dots on those two energia where I'm able to travel and explore the world. And I do so in the capacity as an investment advisor for our clients who want to invest in renewable energy. So I get to the best of both worlds. His philosophy on how he views the world is extraordinary. He begins his energy story with his schooling and how he uses his diplomacy background as an enviro-capitalist in solar energy. He is transitioning the planet forward in the investment and use of solar energy and other renewable energies worldwide. A lot of schooling, especially in grad school, in what could be closely resembling a poli-sci type of field of study, which is international relations. I had a special concentration in African history and French. So it's a lens that you're developing, a lens through which you can view the world, not exclusively as a white male born in Connecticut, but just as a member of history and a participant in a global society. And I've always you know, tried to get that lens right and to balance my own views, which are obviously strong and cultural in myself, but with something closer to reality, which is uh, a blended view and perspective of, of many different countries. School helps you dive deep into that and write and read extensively on these cultures from a very academic perspective. And it just accelerated my traveling experiences. And there's nothing that can replace going there and eating the food and touching the sand and like being part of a place and seeing and smelling and just recognizing you're somewhere foreign. But you can certainly also learn a lot from picking up a book and reading about the history of another country. So I still built my global framework from academics, but I complemented that with a lot of real life travel. And I think those two things have made me a, a global business person. And now I'm able to take those perspectives and apply them to an entrepreneurial journey where for me, it was quite clear that renewable energy and wildlife conservation were going to be two industries that I wanted to be part of, two things that must thrive mm -hmm. uh, for us to have a long-term sustainable world and, and relationship with the world. So that became obvious to me because of those traveling and that synthesis of global perspectives. 
On last week's episode number 157, Protecting and Preserving Wildlife in East Africa, Mike shared his experience in Mali. To continue the story, here's a quick recap. Republic du Mali is a French-speaking country. Their main language is Bambara, but it was a French colony, and uh, it's an ancient culture. It is an extremely poor country, but it is also one of the happiest places I've ever been, which was bizarre. What a juxtaposition of characteristics of a place, simultaneously being the second or third poorest country in the world any given year, but also producing some of the best music and just having a a laughter-based culture. They have really strong communities and societies in Mali that I think was uh, probably overlooked by whoever views it as just a scary poor place. Mali does have farming And I know that people in Africa are, and this will bring us into climate change, into Energia, your company, people who live in these countries, their carbon footprint is so small, yet they are reaping the unfortunate climate change based on our decisions and our legislation in these Western world countries like United States. Mali is suffering from desertification as the Sahara Desert kind of extends its way southward into a region we call the Sahel, which is in between sub-Saharan Africa. It's a semi-arid region where Mali sits. And uh, it's, a, it's a fairly violent, nasty place these days. Countries like Chad and Niger and Mali, uh, even Mauritania, uh, Senegal, Somalia. These countries are all along a strip we call the Sahel. And there's uh, increased pressure. I don't know if I'm qualified to equate the increased desertification directly to climate change. But what I can definitely say it's human induced and that uh, Malians are also guilty of failing to grow things sustainably and to harvest their natural resources sustainably and have themselves encouraged the acceleration of desertification, which has crippling effects on economy, which results in increased violence. And um, it's been uh, a shame to, after returning from Mali, to look back over the course of the last 15 years and watch it really descend into chaos, uh, where Islamification has extreme repercussions there in some pretty nasty groups who call it home now, who weren't there when I was last in Mali. And to see that desertification and increased poverty, you know, start to take its toll on, on the society. So environment and the people who live there are inextricable forces. And that's kind of the message that I think is the most important takeaway from Mali is that, you know, you, you need to work in harmony with your environment to have a strong society. Those are very profound words. And so that certainly brings us into Energia, the company that you co-founded to move renewable energy forward, uh, which I'm really, to be honest with you, this is 2021. I lobbied Congress in 2000, I think it was five, was with the committee, the, the oil and gas committee, and bringing information to them. And Mike, that was, what, almost 15 years ago? I don't know why it's taking so long. Well, let's talk about you and Energia and why you started this. Well, I mean, 
for for one, Catherine, I got some good news for you. Yeah, being in the renewable energy industry, I, I joined in 2007 by creating my first company called Green Skies, which was a solar developer. We would develop projects and sell the power produced from those projects to commercial and industrial customers, mostly big box retail customers like Walmart, and Target, and Amazon, who were our customers, as we would put solar on top of their roofs and then sell them the power from those projects under long-term contract. We also did a number of landfill projects, which are some of my favorite projects we did in that company, where we blanket landfills with solar panels to turn that real estate into a, a new use. Colleges and universities and even utilities were our customers. And the reality is, is that renewable energy very much is taking off. It's not taking off at the scale and speed that we needed to, but it's actually somewhat remarkable. Year over year now in the United States, there is more renewable energy installed than any other type of fossil fuel installed. There's more solar than there is natural gas new capacity every year now for several years in a row. There's more wind and solar than all the fossil fuels combined. There's almost no new coal. There hasn't been a new coal plant. I believe this is a true statement and maybe one of your listeners can fact check this, but I don't think there's been a new coal plant put online in the United States in 20 years. So there, there's quite a bit of uh, transition going on. We call that the energy transition and it's the industry that we're part of and uh, it's getting there, but it's not fast enough, right? So how do we speed this thing up? To give you some numbers, you know, we believe that we need approximately one and a half trillion dollars a year of new wind and solar projects. And uh, right now there's currently about three to 400 billion a year. So we're getting three to 400 billion out of our one and a half trillion dollar target actually mobilized. And this is based off of the conversion rate necessary to energize the world in the way we currently live in it in time to prevent two degrees of climate change, pre-industrial climate change. So we're not even close to on pace with what we need for these projects. And I think also there's a lot of greenwashing out there and people will say, oh, we're investing these big, huge commitments from banks and financiers and corporates, but they're buying hocus pocus sustainable products. The only way to really do this is to build more solar and wind assets. We need more of those things so that we can turn off the carbon emitting fossil burning infrastructure that we currently rely on. So it's really binary. Energia, we, we started thinking about this. Number one, there's a lot of projects around the world that were not getting financial nourishment. We felt that there are some premium project opportunities in Brazil, Sub-Saharan Africa, places even like Europe, South Asia, and even certain markets in the United States that were considered unbankable by the very few select financiers who were engaged in the renewable energy investing space. So we felt that there was a need for a new type of financial technology here where we could summon capital from the retail investor community, like what we just saw happen with you know, Bitcoin. You know, if we can see a trillion dollars move into Bitcoin, wouldn't it be great if we could move a trillion dollars into renewable energy, something that we actually need? Uh, we would like to see that. And, uh, and we're testing the consciousness 
uh, of our culture here and whether or not people are good at complaining about climate change, are, are they going to open up their wallets and, and invest? So we made the investment minimum only $100. And then we started assembling projects from these undernourished segments of the renewable energy marketplace. Everything from a school system in Connecticut, which would be too small of a project for Goldman Sachs to a project with Anchor Foods, a food manufacturer and processing company in South Africa that we just authorized to build today, for example, in our Africa portfolio. It's a good customer. It's a good project. It needs to get built. There's not existing financiers for it. So we created this new channel at Energia so that individuals can be the new source of capital for these projects. Mike provides a short worldwide history, pros and cons, on the investments of early and present-day renewable energy. When I was doing my lobbying, I did so much research, and I found that Jimmy Carter had funded, I think it was a 20-year period of research and development in renewable energy. Jimmy Carter did do quite a bit for specifically solar. He was a big fan of solar energy. If you go to our U.S. portfolio and watch our video that explains the U.S. portfolio, we quote Jimmy Carter a couple of times. He put solar panels on the on the White House. And Reagan took him down. Yeah, and then Reagan took him down, and he also just kiboshed any any uttering of the word renewables was not going to yeah. be his thing. So I think that you can fairly say that the Reagan administration did not really support renewables. But you can't say that across the table for the Republican Party because George Bush, the guy who started uh, E-Pact 05, 2005, created what we now have uh, in the United States is a solar energy industry by creating the investment tax credit, which is still going strong oh, today. Uh, which yeah. it, That all came under Bush. And then another thing is a lot of the early technology, and this was you know, it, late 70s, early 80s, and then all the way through through the last century to the end of the last century. The vast majority of development work happening in renewable energy was being undertaken by the fossil fuel companies. In fact, one of my good friends and sort of a legend of our industry and now the head of the Department of Renewable Energy Loan Guarantee Program in, the, in Washington, his name is Jigger Shaw. Jigger learned about renewable energy while an executive at BP. And BP for a very long time was the only game in town for people sincerely searching for ways of deploying solar energy technology. Chevron was a major early investor in solar energy technologies. I don't know if you were aware of that, but the fossil fuel industries, they are the, the first dynasty of renewable energy R&D enterprises. And only years later did we start to see original private sector groups you know, starting up in renewables, like startups and stuff. And that really happened like around when I started Green Skies, like 2007, 2006, 2010, that time frame. It's really the first venture capitalists call it clean tech 1.0. That period of time is when you no longer needed to be an executive at BP to have the resources in order to create a solar company. You could actually just create a solar company and there would be investors uh, in the venture capital community who would help finance and fund those types of businesses. So Jimmy Carter funded R and D there was no legislation 
put in. So you're saying that really we need legislation around the world so that things can move forward because it seems like the public won't move forward if there is no legislation. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes and no. I would say that in the United States, we chose to use a policy of tax credits to move our deployment of renewable energy industry forward. Now, this is completely separate from the R&D side. And many good ideas, tools that we use every day in the renewable energy industry were developed by the United States government under policies uh, like the R&D investment scheme put forth by Jimmy Carter. We have the National Renewable Energies Laboratory in Golden, Colorado. It's a whole laboratory exclusively set up to figure out how to use renewable energy technologies responsibly and make those technologies bankable. So huge props to those early initial advancements, courtesy of our tax dollars. But those were never really put in place to actually deploy the technology and to commercialize the technology. For that, we rely on the private sector. And the private sector, it's really simple. We all like to be able to flick the switch and turn the light on, and we want the cheapest form of electricity to be on the other side of that bill, that electric bill. And so for a little while there, solar was not the cheapest, and we needed to subsidize it so that it could compete with fossil fuels. And that made a lot of sense. So we had multiple policies, usually state by state. Every state was its own Rubik's Cube of grants and tax credits and and various configurations, uh, feed-in tariffs, renewable energy credits, all sorts of different types of things. All those sat subordinate to a federal level policy called the ITC, the Investment Tax Credit, which basically says if you spend a million dollars on a solar power plant, the government will give you a $300,000 tax write-off. So that encouraged more investors to invest in these projects, which brought the cost down, which allowed it to compete with fossil fuels for energy customer base. So that tax credit is what came in under EPACT 05 was the name of the bill under George Bush 2. And uh, today is still the backbone of the U.S. policy. But I can't say that I'm really a huge fan of it anymore because What's happened is because we had that tax credit, it allowed us to go and adulterate the market by adding tariffs. We actually charge a tremendous tariff at the port when we import solar panels that are manufactured in China. Makes no sense to me. We want to have more renewable energy, don't we? Then let's buy the cheapest panels around, which are all coming from China. We should tip our hats to the Chinese thank them for making this critical technology so darn cost effective and buy the ever living heck out of it instead we you know this these tariffs were put in place by obama first and then continued and increased under trump there are three or four different tariffs and in fact they just had big legislation for us solar guys the international trade commission decided to keep the tariffs in place on solar panels, which makes no sense to me at all. And our industry was begging them to relieve it because if we got rid of the tariffs on the solar panels, then we wouldn't need the tax credit. And we would just have a more natural economy where uh, solar can compete handedly against any other fuel type and win. And that's all we need is just freedom to do that. Uh, you go to places like Brazil 
And it's more famously a void of renewable energy policy. Hmm. And it's it's much more natural. And we compete handedly. We, we create projects called community solar. So we'll build, you know, a, a 50 acre solar array, and then we'll sell that power to a hundred to a thousand different small businesses that are geographically near that plant. We love that. That's the way to go. And all that really requires is for the government should mandate that utility companies, which are mostly privately held throughout the world, are obligated to allow for that. They can't ban solar. You have to be able to allow renewable energy to compete. And other than that, stay the heck out of it. And I think that that is the recipe for success. And we're seeing it now in South Africa, a major market starting to emerge where they realize that they are based off of coal. It's one of the dirtiest energy mixes in the world is South Africa's ESCOM utility. They just, you know, kind of got embarrassed in Scotland and it's time for them to allow for a free market interruption of this coal monopoly with new renewable developers and companies like our business loves to invest in. Oh goodness. What an historical interest here in hearing this from a business perspective. Now, what about Europe? They don't have anywhere near as much capacity installed as we do. Germany has a per capita success story going on where about 53% of their total electric mix comes from renewables. So profound success there. But as a whole, and you know, England did a very nice job. Spain is kind of a famous sort of what not to do renewable energy story though. I'll give you an example. So okay. what, what Europe did, they moved first long after Jimmy Carter in the research and the proof of the technology, the first country to really take a run at it was Germany. Germany created a policy called a feed-in tariff. And a feed-in tariff basically says, look, anybody who installs solar panels can sell electricity from those solar panels to the utility company. And the utility company is obligated to buy it at a certain rate. They have to. So you know that all of your electricity produces pre-sold before you even buy the solar panels and install them on your roof or on the ground or anywhere you want to install them. Put solar panels up and it, all the electricity sold. And they would set the, the feed and tariff rate at a rate that, that the regulators felt would give an adequate return on investment for investors to start buying solar panels and installing the systems or for homeowners to buy solar panels and install them versus the current costs of the things. And it was wildly expensive, but also wildly successful and really commercialized solar for the very first time of any scale. It was really an amazing thing. That's what I was studying when I was getting into the industry in the early 2000s. Those were the case studies, like what is Germany doing? And then Spain decided to do it. They created a feed-in tariff, but Spain did the one thing you shall not do which is five years or so after creating this feed and tariff policy and after people had invested billions of dollars into developing solar energy projects with the promise of being able to sell the electricity under the feed and tariff rules, they said, you know what, that feed and tariff thing, yeah, we're not going to do that. And the investor said, well, I just bought a hundred million dollar solar energy project because you told me that you were going to buy all the power for a certain rate for a certain period of time. And so, yeah, we're, we're not going to do that. 
So all those projects went bankrupt and they wow. completely shammered the industry for many years. I had to explain to banks and financiers with whom I was working to install projects in the United States about why I was so darn confident that Massachusetts wouldn't pull a Spain and massacre the economics of my project midstream after we've already wrote the check. And at the end of the day, you know, there was nothing really preventing Massachusetts from doing that other than the fact that good economies don't do that. If you retrade on government promises, people will stop doing business in your country. And to this day, I still see deals from Spain come across my desk from time to time. But I always have to think about the old feed and tariff days and the days at which Spain pulled the rug out underneath investors and renewables in the early days. That's just some old industry stories, if you're interested. <laughs> oh, I'm always interested in, in what's happening mm -hmm. in the world. It educates me because there are stories, obviously, that I'm not going to be able to pick up a book and read about. I'm interested in solar. We did put up our solar panels many, many years ago. Well, Mike Silvestrini, this has been so informative with all of the information that you have provided, and I appreciate it. And you, of course, are helping with the acceleration of renewable energy development worldwide, and that is commendable, along with the preservation and conservation of wildlife and ecosystems. So, Mike Silvestrini, if you could let people know where they can find you. Thank you so much for having me, Catherine. Really appreciate the show and what you do here to spread these kinds of stories and to give experiences like mine a stage to be told. And I'm easiest to find at my email address, which is mike at energia.com. That's E-N-E-R-G-E-A.com. And we hope that some of your listeners check out the website. And for those who feel compelled to do so, maybe even make uh, an investment into a renewable energy project that promises to pay dividends for decades to come. Mike Silvestrini, thank you so much for being here on Your Positive Imprint. Well, I'm a believer that we all need to do our part for the transition into renewable energy. Well, next week's guests are from Australia, and we're going to have a chat about the right to repair legislation in Australia and worldwide. Sound effects used for this episode were obtained from zapsplat.com. Please leave positive reviews and share these episodes, and don't forget to follow, subscribe, or download this podcast, Your Positive Imprint. What's your P.I.?